0: My name is Anjali Bhatt, I'm a third year PhD student at Stanford GSB and I have here with me today Professor JP Ferguson also at Stanford GSB to discuss with him his new ASQ article with Sarah and Thomas Dudley entitled Osmotic Mobilization and Union Support During the Long Protest Wave 1960 to 1995. JP, would it be fair to say that we can summarize this article as about social movement spillovers that cross the boundary of the firm.
1: That's as good a summary as we're going to get. Thank you, (laughs) Anjali. It's good to be here.
0: So this paper brings together two pretty neat data sets. So maybe you can tell me a little bit about these data sets and the motivation behind this paper more generally.
1: Sure. So the first of those data sets is the one that uh, Sarah worked with, with Susan Olszak, Doug McAdam, and John McCarthy uh, for many years in the late 90s and early aughts. That is the dynamics of Oh, they're going to kill me if I don't get this right, but I'm pretty sure it's the Dynamics of Collective Action is the name of that data set. This was an attempt to get micro-level data on every sort of social protest activity they could find in the United States over a long historical period, which they did in what I think of as a very old school, but probably the only way you could have done it, which is to say they hired an army of undergraduates to read and code the New York Times for decades and put together a massive database of every Uh, disruptive social protest event that tended to happen during that period. And at, at one point Sarah said to me, you know, the one thing it doesn't have, and they had to make a decision about this, is labor activity. So it doesn't have strikes, for example. And there was partly a decision that strikes were already gathered by other parts of the government, and partly that back in the day there was so much labor activity, both out in the world and being covered in the newspapers that it would have swamped a lot of the other things that they were looking at, which when you tell that to people today always confuses them because uh, the youth are callow and they don't know their history. Um, so it, it, was a real, it was a real achievement within that field because pretty much all of the work up to that point in social movements re- relied on some aggregate measures of social protest activity. It might be the number of organizations in a given year, total number of protests that people could record and so on. And in many ways, this resembled a problem that had existed in labor movements research, which is people tended to use things like aggregate strike activity, aggregate level of organizing, or what have you, and because of where they were getting the data from. And I have a background, having worked with uh, data from the National Labor Relations Board on uh, unions and organizing and collective bargaining and the like, and so had a long history working with the micro-level data on union activity. And, you know, the genesis of the paper is fairly straightforward. I saw Sarah presenting out of that data set shortly after I came to Stanford and said, you know, you've got some pretty neat peanut butter and I have jelly. (laughs)
0: Um,
1: The thing that's missing from your data is something that I've worked with in the past. Maybe we should at some point think about putting these together. Then three or four years passed. uh, And honestly, when Thomas joined our PhD program as a first-year student, uh, he was attached to me as an RA And I like getting PhD students as RAs because it forces me to come up with new projects to, you know, break them on the wheel, as it were. And so I said, Thomas, uh, you need to learn how to munge data. You're going to work on matching uh, these two data sets for a while. And so that idea, which had been sort of simmering on the back burner, really came forward once we had someone. I make this sound like I put him through a lot of misery. I did. But (laughs) I, I do want to emphasize that I only have my students do things that I've at least done once before, so I can make sure that they're doing it right and teach them how to do it along the way. So uh, medium
0: misery. So it's clear that there's, there are a lot of areas of overlap between thinking about labor movements and social movements, but did you have the research question in mind when you were mulling it over or did that come up more organically?
1: One of the things that I have always been sort of fascinated by as a researcher is how available data tends to shape the questions that we ask. And what are often explicitly understood as compromises early on based on what the available data is, like the next generation that picks up the ball and runs with it doesn't realize why those compromises were being made, and so often we end up sort of ossifying our theories and our beliefs about the world because of empirical facts that we no longer think to examine. So in other words, for me, this, this may sound like I'm an empiricist or a methodologist, but it's, it's not really. It's the way that the, the available empirics constrain our theorizing over time and often there are things that we just think we know about the world that turn out to be wrong because we haven't gone back and re-examined them and people often forget uh, things that empirical facts that were the meat that drove the original theory I'll go briefly off the reservation for a second Uh, population ecology is like this it's often considered a piece of high organizational theory but it has built within it, for example, the idea that organizations are inert and one of the things that causes inertia in organizations is the fact that routines allow organizations to be more efficient, but they require the tacit coordination of large numbers of people, and so are hard to change. Well, there's an implication there that anything, any change technologically, in terms of regulation or otherwise within organizations, that makes coordination more flexible should reduce the level of inertia that organizations face. But the connection between the sort of meso-level crap that's happening inside, can we say crap on this podcast? Crap that's happening inside organizations and the sort of Theoretical constructs we work with often gets forgotten over time and you know, it's the same thing with things like institutional theory that Institutional theory when we talk about decoupling there's an assumption that there's a technical core of tasks and a bunch of other external facing tasks that organizations do and that we can decouple those so like those kind of implications can get forgotten well when it comes to labor organizing in particular people tend to look at things like aggregate density and they look at effects of things like social protests on aggregate union density. In fact, all the papers, uh, Larry Isaac has a couple that we kind of riff off of in designing this in ASR and AJS, 2002 and 2006, respectively. And he was looking at sort of aggregate levels of social movements on aggregate levels of union density. And the thing that we disliked about that kind of reasoning is what we really care about is a kind of Coleman's boat issue. You know, as we go from aggregates to aggregates. We really think what's happening here is social movements cause mobilization or politicization of the population. They therefore engage in some form of costly collective action. That's going to show up in those aggregate union density measures. But in practice, a lot of things drive an aggregate, like union density. You know, People getting you know, motivated by protests and going out and organizing unions, yeah, that's going to raise density. But like factory closings and relocation of plants non-union parts of the United States, and the disappearance of industries because of foreign competition. That's all going to lower union density. And that all goes into that outcome variable that people are using. And so imagine you try to look at the relationship between these aggregates and there's no relationship or a negative relationship. And you conclude from that that, oh, the relationship between protest and mobilization for unions is non-existent or negative. No, you just have an incredibly noisy aggregate measure that you're trying to use. And so the question that had been lurking in the back of my mind was, theory says there should be a positive spillover between different types of mobilization. I mean, that's kind of what social movements as a research field is about. And maybe we aren't finding it here because of the restrictive nature of the kind of data we've had to measure outcomes. And if we could measure at an outcome that is more sort of theoretically prior and closer to what we think is happening, maybe we see effects. And that's, that's the main finding in the paper, is there is indeed a positive relationship. Of course, it gets swamped by all these other changes. But the point of the paper was not to like measure the exact level of union mobilization over these years. It's to say, can we find any evidence of a relationship that theory would predict here?
0: The other thing that you mentioned in the paper is that there are a lot of mechanisms that could actually link prior mobilization to future intra-firm mobilization. Yeah. Do you see any of those as more important or you know, to focus on? I know you, you didn't test those, but...
1: So rank speculation for a moment. I think that what are often referred to as the indirect channels of spillover between social movements are probably the more important ones. So the direct measures are physical and concrete in various ways. This is the idea that you might have social movements sharing an office space, mm-hmm. members who overlap between organizations... I could go on, but you get the idea. I think the indirect stuff tends to be the like the observation that a certain type of action is possible and acceptable in the world. Like, I'm not myself taking part in a march, but perhaps I notice that people are able to take part in marches and it seems to have an effect in the world. And I don't think this is sort of independent of time. I think that today, those indirect indirect effects are probably some of the most important ones. The demonstration effect that people manage to... Because my sense today is a lot of... Partly because of the decline of things like the labor movement, people assume that they're fairly powerless within organizations in which they have to spend a lot of their time. I think that the sort of demonstration effect that collective action is an important thing. And collective action that involves some way to protect yourself against retaliation is both feasible and desirable... Like those kind of channels, I think, are probably the most important ones um, to think about going forward.
0: Yeah, I mean, I think a lot of the, the audience members for this podcast, PhD students and otherwise, are probably interested in how this, these kinds of mechanisms apply to today's world with you know, maybe new or sort of semi new social movements like Black Lives Matter and Me Too, which have uh, roles both inside and outside the, the, the organizational settings. How do you think these apply? What do you think are some implications?
1: Uh, If you talk to anyone like me who has spent a lifetime, a lifetime, I'm 40, for God's sake. (laughs) Um, So let me back that up. If you talk to anyone like me who spent more than a decade studying the labor movement, in 2018 in the United States, uh, we're treated like a recondite variety of historian. People don't know anything about organized labor at this point, or the labor movement generally in American history. And so, like, it's a frustrating time to be alive if you're someone like me, because a lot of social protest is both really important and frustrating insofar as it feels like people are rediscovering the wheel. Like, So people think about social protest, but they don't think about how we would build structures that allow that protest to be institutionalized, how we could have countervailing power that would limit powerful people's ability to retaliate against us, and so on. And so much of that is like, yeah, that's why we evolved to this thing called the labor movement. So a lot of problems that people are sort of discovering anew, mm-hmm. But I have to be careful when I say this, uh, for two reasons. And when I say this, I mean the labor movement already did that, or that's what the labor movement was for, you thick dolt. That's, you have to be careful about saying these things, and for two reasons. The first is that simple rule. When people suddenly become interested in something that you think is really important, and have thought is important for a long time, you're supposed to greet their interest with joy and acceptance not shout at them and say that you already knew that. There's no better way to drive people away than to do that. Uh, the second reason is you have to separate out the lessons we can learn from the organized labor movement from the specific historical instantiation of those in the American labor movement. Like people like me think that the labor movement or individual labor unions and like made plenty of mistakes historically, but there are still ideas we can learn from that organizational form that are incredibly important. So the idea that a lot of types of change in organizations is very hard to do unless people feel like they are protected from retaliation and that's how you solve a lot of those problems of people taking risk comes from the labor movement. Whether that comes exactly through something that looks like a labor union in the United States as recognized under the National Labor Relations Act, etc., is a separate question. I mean it's the striking examples are things like Think about discrimination in the workplace and diversity policies that firms have. We talk about some of this in the paper. Like Many of those were explicitly modeled on collective bargaining agreements that labor unions had developed over time. Right? The idea that you have a grievance procedure and that you can appeal that, and that, for example, if you're going to have arbitration, you want the arbitrator to be neutral, which among other things means can't be paid by one party right, to avoid conflict of interest. This is all stuff that was developed through years of difficult negotiation between employers and labor unions. And people who were developing anti-discrimination and diversity policy learned from that and took those ideas away. Now, does that mean you exactly have to have a labor union for those things to work? No. But you always run into this problem, how do you put those things into place without an, an active actor, right, without an organizational actor that pushes for them? And so the need to have independent organizations that can lobby that have a basis of power outside the firm as well as inside is always incredibly important. So in terms of modern movements that are dealing with these issues, I think what we, you know, someone like me who spent a lot of time looking at labor unions would say, you know, MeToo is a hashtag that exists inside a lot of organizations without a larger grouping or organization in its own right beyond individual firms to lobby for a set of interests its lifespan is probably limited or its effectiveness is to some extent limited because then you're going to get progress in the organizations that are already sympathetic toward your goals. And this is just a general problem for organizational research. So many of the things that we like to study, they might be put into place by the firms that want to put them into place, right? The firms that cooperate with us and share their data are the firms that are probably more sympathetic to the policies that we're trying to study, you know, As soon as you start to think about how can we have diffusion of a practice that we think is important without simple self-selection by employers, you have to think about having independent organizations that can help push those things forward. Because without that, you're always going to have heterogeneous diffusion.
0: Yeah. In the paper, you talk about how the two forms of organizations or organizational infrastructures that can enable that kind of change are labor unions, but also laws and legal systems. Right. And that those laws and legal systems can sometimes take the place of the need for labor unions, potentially vice versa. Do you see what are the differences between those two forms that you think are important to consider today?
1: One of the classic arguments for why things like labor unions, or generally independent sources of worker power that could hold employers accountable inside firms is a thing to be valued, is efficiency. Now ironically, when you start saying unions and efficiency, people just blink at you. Because everyone today assumes that unions are an incredibly inefficient organizational actor. Let me point out first, as an organization theorist, you should take an open systems perspective on this. like. If you have an environment, as we do in the United States, that's unbelievably hostile to unions and collective bargaining, think about what type of union is going to survive in that context. Eventually, the only members of the population left are going to be the most ruthless and focused on self-preservation at all costs. Anyone more idealistic is going to get smashed. It's not surprising to me that we have both a very anti-union climate in the United States overall and a lot of really ruthless and self-protective labor organizations, like It's kind of like in World War II when they had bombers coming back that were damaged and they said we need to put uh, armor on the spots where we don't see damage on the returning bombers because the planes that came back are the ones that got hit in spots but they made it back. And so the same thing holds like well if you want more idealistic uh, forms of uh, work organization make it easier for them to organize full stop. So when I say efficiency, people often just blink at me because today the labor union is considered an extremely inefficient type of organization. But uh, there's a famous set of Supreme Court cases called the Steelworkers Trilogy from the 1970s where it's essentially the series of Supreme Court cases where they started to say through collective bargaining and arbitration, these private actors, labor unions and employers, have developed a type of case law. Right, They've essentially, and like the common law to some extent should defer to this stuff and should treat it as precedent when we're trying to resolve conflicts in organizations. And I bring this up because the argument was, okay, let's imagine we say that we're going to put something in place like the Fair Labor Standards Act, you know, maximum hours, minimum wages, etc. and then we want to enforce that. One version is we have a government agency that enforces this, and they have to go out and the, you know you file claims, and they come and they investigate and depending on what they find they decide whether they want to potentially press legal charges this maybe has to go through the courts eventually you might choose to settle out of court or a settlement might be decided and then the judge has to say what has to change we all know how this system works this is by the way mostly what we do with things like discrimination today everyone agrees it's pretty inefficient the first thing any government regulator will tell you is how thinly spread they are relative to the scale of the problem Uh, Anyone who's tried to file a discrimination claim will talk to you about how difficult and drawn out that process is. You know, one of the arguments with things like grievance procedures, arbitration, or anything else was, boy, it'd be a lot more efficient if we could just resolve this at the point where the problem occurs. We'd rather have enforcement directly within the workplace where we don't have to rise to the level of bringing in outside regulators and so on. That feels like it would be faster, more flexible, and more efficient. Now, that can only happen if the people who are bringing the grievances forward feel like they have an actor inside the organization that will credibly represent their interests. If the government were to defer to arbitration, where the arbitrator is entirely compensated by, you know, kept in employment by the employer, obviously workers aren't going to take that seriously, which is why we have a lot of pushback today against things like mandatory employment arbitration. But I think that this is one of the ways that we think it's incredibly important to have independent organizations and not just rely on law and regulation. The distinction I would draw is there are things that unions negotiated through individual employers in the United States historically, things like health insurance, for their members. Health insurance, first off, you don't, it's not like you have to arbitrate it and adjudicate it at every individual workplace. It's a general social product that there's a market failure where it doesn't tend to be provided well otherwise most other countries solve this by legislation, right? They've got some form of universal health care. We're done. You know, and that's how we're going to take care of this. And there it's less efficient to try and bargain it with each individual employer and set it up in each workplace. Never mind, it's also very incomplete. It leads to a lot of rigidity in the labor market because people don't want to change jobs because they'll lose their health insurance. So like that's the kind of things that unions in the United States did that someone like me says, well, now that in a sense, Unions are kinda of gone in many ways, and we want to if we want to bring something like that back, don't focus on problems like that one, where the easiest solution because notice that's also really efficient to enforce at a fairly centralized federal level. It's things like your autonomy at the workplace, your freedom from retaliation, your specific negotiation for the conditions of work and benefits, that's a lot more efficient to negotiate at the workplace. Like those are important issues. And I would rather solve those through the empowering of independent organizations to negotiate them than to rely on regulation uh, to both enforce the general idea and all the different applications.
0: It's a fascinating discussion that we could, we could go on forever about. But I, returning to the paper and the, and the project specifically, I'm curious about how you thought about framing this paper and what other framings you considered.
1: So I will, I'll nip at the hand that feeds me as I talk about this, sorry ASQ, you're a good journal. So I think the main contribution of this paper is to say people tended to, like, I think the theoretical question is the first and most important one. We think that there should be a positive relationship between these large social movements and this large organizational residue of a previous social movement upsurge, i.e. the labor movement. And the fact that people haven't found one is kind of weird. And... Uh, I think that's because they were using the wrong type of data and we need to look at that. And lo and behold, there is. And there's, an, I think, an important contribution there in noting we can improve upon past findings by saying if we take the research question very seriously and we focus on are we measuring this correctly, maybe we get very different results. Like that kind of stuff is where I think uh, a lot of advances can lie. There is a tendency, it's, and it's not just an ASQ problem. This exists with journals in our field that people want to know sort of what the novel or broad theoretical contribution is. And the reason why this makes me grumpy, and you'll hear this in a podcast, is because then we get the sort of question of like, how does this generalize or what's the broader implications of this question? And part of me, of course, wants to say, really, we're talking about the largest wave of social mobilization in American history and the largest organizational product of working class mobilization in American history and how they related to one another over a couple of decades. And seriously, you want to ask me, like, how does this generalize to other settings? It's like, I've read this journal. <laughs> I know you've got single firm studies that look at something, you know, in two food co-ops. Give me a break. And so that's the nipping. Now, there's a moment when it's like, well, how does this generalize to other settings? Jesus. You know, ultimately, if you, if you push me for how do we take giant important social objects and say, how do they generalize? I'm going to say, well, like the main thing here that's different from other social movements work that I have seen is we ended up looking at the, as opposed to like, people have often tended to look at the activity of people outside organizations and then outcomes inside organizations. And we said, well, the difference here is we're looking at activity outside organizations and the founding of new movements inside organizations fine. I'm happy to talk about that to some extent. In practice, of course, there are cases beyond protest movements that really took off in the 1960s and organized labor. More than a decade ago, Michael Piore and Sean Stafford had a great piece in Industrial Relations when they talked about shifting axes of mobilization away from class toward identity-based issues, and were pointing out the rise of identity groups within firms. You might have a collection of Indian engineers, female accountants, gay supervisors. As the case might be in many organizations, we start to see such interest groups forming. And obviously that bears some relationship to public mobilization around those identity issues. It's important to think about it. And also the thing that we really liked about looking at labor organizing is you could look at heterogeneity in that diffusion. Because what we so often see is we have a social movement and then an issue that people mobilize around later on. So... We want to green the WTO. We want to focus on the adoption of same-sex marriage provisions. But it's like we only have one social movement and then maybe a couple of firms. We don't have multiple social movements and multiple possible targets inside those firms. And like, So the great thing about looking at the protest movements of the 1960s and then looking at their effect on the foundation of labor unions is there's actually tremendous heterogeneity among labor unions. And so if you wanted to look at spillover you could focus not just on the characteristics of the firms, but also the organizations that might be formed. And that we thought was a really interesting, and indeed that's one of the findings of the paper, is, I mean, it shouldn't shock us, but it's nonetheless relieving to see that it conforms with what we might have predicted, that unions that had in the past taken fairly costly, but we think the right stances on issues like civil rights or opposition to the Vietnam War, are the ones that tended to benefit more from uh, social mobilization around those issues.
0: Let's talk a little bit about the research process itself. So it, with this paper, there are uh, a senior faculty member, a junior faculty member, and a PhD student involved. Sure. I'm curious about how what the collaboration was like, what you learned from it, and, and how it might affect you thinking about collaborative projects going forward.
1: Sure. This is, the, this is the only paper I've ever written with a senior colleague. Read into that what you will. Uh, I think it mostly means... I was lazy in grad school and didn't write more papers with my advisors. But <laughs> whereas I've collaborated several times with graduate students on papers. And, you know, the, the collaboration between Sarah and me really has its start. Like I said, it was partly that, okay, we each have a data set that would be useful. But, you know, Sarah and her collaborators on that project were very explicit with folks. Like, we want this to be a data set that people can download and use uh, for other projects. So it's not, like, it's not like her participation was a quid pro quo or anything like that. Rather, I said, Sarah, I know the literature on union organizing well. I know a lot of the history of social movements in the 1960s and 70s very well. But compared to you, I'm no expert on the history of social movement research and the way that social movement scholars work on this. And the wonderful part about Sarah is I could say, Sarah, we need six paragraphs here on what, like, if you could organize the various mechanisms by which social movements can spill over and affect one another, like, it would take me a couple of months to read up on the literature, understand how that fits together. And She'd say, like, yeah, I'm, I'm flying somewhere tomorrow. I've got 45 minutes on the plane. I'll write it and I'll send it to you. Then, bloop, there it would be. <laughs> right, and then I would edit that and we'd put it in. I'd show it back to her. Did I get this right? And so on. So I think for a lot of the first round of the paper, the fact that we could contribute our separate bodies of knowledge in a sense to the lit review was incredibly important because that gave us a way those were the parts where we could where our contributions were additive and it was very easy to do that. On the research method you know I I insist to this day that I'm a fairly bad econometrician like I try to focus on research designs that don't require high-powered statistical knowledge because I, I lack it. Whereas Thomas got a sort of in his spare time earned a master's in statistics at Stanford and so I spent a lot of time he and I would go back and forth about what type of model should we do, do we think this is the right way uh, to specify this, whereas you know, Thomas was at the time getting up to speed in organizational theory generally and the history of social movements and particularly organized labor isn't something that's taught to kids that were born in the late 1980s in the United States at least as far as I can tell and so like he, But he could contribute a lot of methodology that I was rusty on, and Sarah, being older than me, was rustier still, right? I don't want to simply imply that age is correlated with statistical expertise, but <laughs> uh, you know, in our small case, it was. The other great advantage of having someone like Thomas who wasn't a, a subject expert, either in labor movements or in social movements, was then you have a third set of eyes, like reading the paper, who can say like, I, this this doesn't follow, or you're making a bunch of assumptions about how I think the world works that aren't actually correct, and you, or you're referring to things that I have no idea what they are, and I have to duck over to Wikipedia to make sure I understand what you're talking about, which like neither Sarah nor I was going to notice in some of those cases that we had done that, and so it sounds so patronizing to say he lent a really useful element of naivete to the process, but there's truth, and you know in fact. This is what we do when we write papers anyway, is we write our paper, and then the reason you workshop your paper is your smart colleagues nonetheless have no idea what you're talking about, and that's when you realize, oh, I've taken a bunch of things for granted that I thought my audience was going to know, and they don't.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: right? And there are times when having someone like that as a co-author just speeds that process up uh, in a really important way. And frankly, professors are bad at explaining to graduate students that they can be useful for this graduate students are really scared to do it because a graduate student never wants to tell a professor, I don't understand what you're talking about in this paragraph because the answer that they're afraid the professor's going to give is that's because you're dumb and a failure and should leave the program. (laughs) In practice, what it probably means is that's because I wrote it fast and didn't think about writing clear sentences. You know, I'm not going to lie, there are professors who are insecure and will cover up the fact that they wrote something poorly and unclearly by attempting to pass the blame on to the student, but they're wrong and they should learn from the fact that, you know, one of the best, best pieces of advice I got in graduate school was confusion is a data point, right? And so whether or not you end up being able to explain it to the person, you have to remember the fact that they were confused is something you should notice. And frankly, if more than one person is confused, the odds are extremely good. It's because you wrote something confusing, not because two dullards happened to read your work. Yeah, I find that incredibly useful. And the same point holds, Sarah would write things about social movements that I didn't recognize and needed her to explain in more detail. I would write things about labor movements that vice versa.
0: So my last question for you is, how, how has this specific project influenced your research agenda? And what questions uh, would you like to study next?
1: Well, first I'll mention a specific one related to this project, and then the general. More broadly in my research, I do a lot on employment segregation. And I've worked done many papers using data from the Equal Employment Opportunity Commission, for example. And uh, one of the findings in this paper is that progressive unions did better, particularly in the wake of protests related to civil rights. And it sort of follows that if we knew... And there's an an implied uh, chain of mechanisms there that, in particular, African-American workers during the 1960s and 1970s recognize both the effectiveness, feasibility, and desirability of collective action to improve their situation in the world, politically and economically. Uh, We know that, historically, black workers have been more likely to join unions and that only accelerated, particularly in the public sector, uh, in the wake of the civil rights movement and uh, Jake Rosenfeld and other people have done excellent work on many of these points. It follows that if we knew the employment composition of the places where the union organizing drives that we study in the paper, effects should be stronger in workplaces where the workplace was less white. Now to figure that out requires matching some, you know, the historical data from the Equal Employment Opportunity Commission, with the organizing data from the National League. So basically tying a third gigantic data set uh, together to look at this. But my strong suspicion is the effects that we found in the paper should be stronger in more, I'm going to say, generally more diverse, but particularly less white workplaces. I say that because white Americans vote for unions at lower rates than non-white Americans, and this is a pretty stable fact historically. Don't ask me why. It breaks my heart. And so that's like a specific follow-up with this paper uh, that I would like to see happen. I think a general point about the research process, though, is this was one of two papers I was working on around this time where people kept asking me as I was putting the data set together, like, what are you hoping to find? I, is there a positive result? Is there a negative result? What have you? And I said, like, I expect to find a positive result, but it, like, I think this is the right way to be measuring this, and I'd be just as interested if I found a negative result. Um, insofar as it's not a perfect research design, I'd be a little more frustrated with a non-like a null result in this case because it's first off, it's just wrong to say you can't learn from a null result. You can't learn well from a null result when you have observational data. The distinction should be clear. You can learn all sorts of things from null results. When you have a good experiment, that's what an experimentum crucis is all about. But what was striking there is I realized, okay, one way or the other, I'm interested in this. And I, I've often said to PhD students here that at some point as an assistant professor, I decided I just never again wanted to work on a research project where if I didn't get a certain result, I was going to feel like the project was a waste. Because I feel like it's not just that that's, you know, the, the conspiratorial version of this is that's what leads people toward scientific fraud. I don't necessarily think that's the case, but I do think that's what leads us toward hypothesizing after the results are known. It's what leads us to endless reframing. It's what leads us to mining the data and then building a story around a collection of opportunistic, significant conclusions. Like All of this partly stems from that idea and it's like, no, we should be designing research questions where at the outset we agree that the results, whatever they are, are interesting. We should not be starting research projects implicitly with the idea that we have to find a certain result or it's over because that's not actually how science works and like, with this paper, I was pleased in the sense that I got the, neg- the positive result. But, I mean, a negative one would have been just as interesting. And I think that's the direction you kind of have to go with research.
0: JP, thanks for your time. Is there anything that I should have asked you that I didn't?
1: Gosh, there's so many ways to go with that question. <laughs> um, you know, how awesome I am, <laughs> uh, when I expect to be handed my Nobel for this work, those kind of things. But uh, I guess we can just defer those for
0: another chat. JP, thanks so much for your time. And Thank you. Hope everyone gets a chance to read, read their new piece in ASQ.